It's only been a few weeks since last time, but it seems like months ago. The tension in the air that has come from this COVID culture has a strange way of warping the laws of space-time, like none of the rules work anymore. People have been stressed, but I'm starting to notice some long-term effects of the survival mode we've been in since early this year. I want everybody to feel encouraged to hold on to hope this year and to remember that we truly do need each other to get through this time. This much stress and worry have a tendency to negatively affect the brain and physical health, so we are in a position where focusing on being healthy should be of high priority. We're also, hopefully, understanding the importance of cooperative relationships with our community members as we work to grow through a pandemic reality. But what's been keeping me from bursting into hopeless and noisy thought vortexes is an unwavering insistence on staying positive and keeping hope through solutions-based philosophies found in fields like distributive economics. Distributive design is the concept which author and economics professor Kate Rayworth maps out via five pillars that together hold up a sustainable economy as its foundation. Much of this is discussed in her book, Donut Economics, as you know, I've been reading that, as a multi-pronged approach to tackling inequality, which we covered more in detail last time. But on top of being a great solution to inequality in general, these ideas are meant to strengthen the very fabric of what it means to own property, to be an employee, to manage currency, use technology, or foster the innovation of new groundbreaking ideas. It also explores the idea that perhaps our obsession with endless growth makes less sense than a sharper focus on thriving not just economically, but socially and environmentally, creating a society which thrives rather than survives. These concepts bring such hope to me because the structure they put together is completely directed towards solutions that empower human beings while simultaneously ensuring the respect of our natural areas, influencing the concept of an economy which can actually give back to nature for a change. Now, some of these ideas may seem far-fetched and even outlandish to some of you, but stick around and see what you make of it. This time on Sustainable Culture Podcast, let's continue from our previous discussion on inequality by kicking off part two of our series on distributive economics, distributive design. So welcome back, everybody, to the Sustainable Culture Podcast. It's great to have you, as always, and it's great to be here, as always. Um, it's been a month, a full month, since you guys have seen me last, because we were supposed to do the book club episode last time, 
and things just got really, really crazy. And as you, as, I don't know if you guys know this, Brie, aside from being a business owner, which is crazy busy on its own, she's also a full-time, well, I don't know about full-time, but she's, anyway, she's a professional artist and she, you know, gets paid to do art for people sometimes. And so, um, so she basically has multiple jobs and um, just craziness. So she was just like, just bombarded with work and I work a professional job full time. And so it's, it's crazy. We, we've both just been super, super, super not able to have free time really. And whatever free time we have had, we've been spending on, well, basically resting and getting mentally uh, able to contribute in society once again. So, so I appreciate you guys' patience. It's good to have you back with me here. And, uh, you know, I hope everybody's staying healthy. I hope you're stretching, sleeping, practicing gratitude where is appropriate, you know, loving people on purpose and uh, doing nice things for strangers, perhaps anything to help us reinforce and remember that we're on the same side right now. And it can be really difficult, especially North Idaho right now. Our, uh, our, our health board up here, in case you aren't from here, just recently this past week voted to mandate masks finally here in Kootenai County. And it has caused quite the noise with locals. And um, it's it's mainly because, I think it's mainly because a lot of people just really just don't feel heard. Um, they really kind of rushed this vote through. And, and so I know during the hearing, it was like over 100 people showed up to be heard to talk. And I think only like 20 people or something like that. It was like 20 people or so were allowed to talk. And uh, so a lot of people showed up to be heard. And very little people, they weren't even let in. And then a bunch of people got kicked out. And I heard that it was just just something else. I heard it was just a total mess. And, uh, and then so they pushed this vote through. And the crazy thing is they gave no instructions to um, on this mandate. It gave zero instructions to businesses on what they should do and how they should, you know, manage the mandate. And, uh, and so I've heard a lot of business owners say things like, am I supposed to enforce this? I'm not law enforcement, you know, and it's not my job to do that. And so it's, it's, it's been crazy. A lot of businesses are trying to figure out what the heck they're going to do. And, um, unfortunately what I am seeing though, is people on both sides of the mask debate are becoming increasingly more aggressive towards people who are on the other side of the argument. Like if you wear a mask and you don't agree with wearing a mask, there are people who are just like shouting and berating and, and like yelling and stuff, rants and raves at these people and the other way around too. So you have people who don't wear masks and then you have all the other people who are like, wear a mask and pressuring them. And then, uh, then you have business owners who, and managers at, at these poor retail people who have both people yelling at them. Let's say there are people in the store who decided not to wear a mask before the mandate. They were getting yelled at for, not having people wear masks and then they were getting yelled at for people having wear masks and it, it was just it's been a mess up here and what i've been realizing is it's kind of it's giving me this constant reminder that we have to actively begin to fight against polarization not just you know uh not talking mean about people and not doing things but like being against polarization actively because if you think about where we're at right now it is so easy 
to polarize someone. I've accidentally done it a couple of times. This last week I did it one time on Facebook and I had to apologize because just sharing opinions and stuff, I mean, it's hard to express an opinion or even use slang terms or anything and not hurt somebody's feelings and stuff. And I get outrage culture and cancel culture and all this type of stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about how tense everyone is right now. Everyone's so stressed and, and you're either on one side or the other, even if you're not even trying to be on a side. So I propose that we all try and be aggressively nice, as SpongeBob would put it. You know, let's fight against this polarization in our culture. We can't continue this anymore. We can't continue fighting with each other about stuff that we have convinced ourselves we're right on, even though we're not the experts on this stuff a lot of the time. So let's just be cool. And, uh, and everything will be solved. Uh, simple as that. Boom. World peace. Did it. Done. Figured it out. Right here on Sustainable Culture Podcast. You heard it first. Bottom line, though, we want to live in societies within which we feel like we have some kind of peace in the pie, right? Um, some kind of stock in that shared investment. We are back again then with Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics, uh, this time to introduce her five distributive design principles, which are meant to provide the structure which actually holds up a sustainable economy. So again, this is a sequel to last month's episode on inequality, part one on, on distributive economics. If you haven't been there yet, I would highly recommend it to gain a better context for what I'm about to cover. You'll still gain plenty from this episode and you'll still understand cer certain things and whatnot. Um, especially if you've maybe read up a bunch on inequality already, but the context will be better for both of these episodes. So just so you know, if you haven't watched the first one, I would go back and watch the first one. And if not, you'll still, I think you'll still learn a lot. So these five pillars, here are the five pillars that she mentions. Who owns the land? Who makes the money? Who owns your labor? Who owns the robots? And who owns ideas? Starting right here at the first one, we're not even going to try and, and explain these. We're just going to explain them as we go, okay? So number one, who owns the land? So let's think about what land gives people. What does land do for us? And we could go back and look at historical context and all this stuff. But what does having land mean for us in terms of our you know, societal worth? Owning land makes people feel secure in the fact that they have a livelihood, or at least at bare minimum, the opportunity to create one and even something to leave behind to their family. Land is incredibly scarce. Um, Mark Twain caught on to this and he's been famously quoted saying, buy land, they're not making it anymore. And, uh, you know, it is incredibly scarce. So just having land adds value to yourself in the first place, just to have it and not even do anything with it. Just the fact that you can do something with it um, is something that really notches you up in society a bit. When you buy, if, if I was able to buy land today and do it, I would. So we know land has value. So let's talk about what determines value, okay? So to a local community, a piece of land might feel very different in value than to say a national or an international corporation that has no investment in a town. Um, you know, so for example, you know, you look around town and a lot of Coeur d'Alene people um, in here in Coeur d'Alene who've lived here for years, and this is the case with tons of small towns. If you've lived in a small town for maybe your whole life or, or decades, 
you've most likely watched that place grow and change and maybe become a completely different place. You don't, you don't even recognize anymore. And people here in Coeur d'Alene, man, they know what this is like because Coeur d'Alene was a really small town, like a mill town. Now it's a resort town. It's growing so fast and there are so many people moving here and, you know, things have been crazy this year, of course, with COVID and everything, but it's, but people are moving here crazy fast. And so you don't have to go far to see all kinds of international national corporations who are here in town and, and buying up land and just putting in shopping centers and things like that. That's been happening here for years. It happens in cities all over the place. So, you know, you have to take into account corporate expansion when it comes to land. It's an inevitable conversation. So due to corporate expansion, indigenous people all too commonly lose their land to business and industry, oftentimes without their consent. Imagine what that would be like to lose your land without having any, you were never asked, but all of a sudden a business owns it. You know, you live, imagine a reality and some alternate reality where you live in this indigenous tribe in the Amazonian rainforest. And before you know it, your land's being burned down and the trees are being cut down and the animals in that area are being killed. Um, it's an extreme situation, but this happens a lot. And if you don't believe me, let's go into this. Since the year 2000, foreign investors have made over 1,200 land deals in low to middle income countries, acquiring over 43 million hectares of land. That's bigger than Japan. The majority of these deals were signed without the consent of indigenous communities. So the bottom line here is shining a light on the fact that communities manage their land better than anybody else does. Let's build a system then that would let us figure that out. You know, I'm not sure what that would look like exactly yet because we'd need to get the right people together in a committee and determine that, you know, every community will logically have its own set of problems and its own selection of solutions. It needs to match the needs of the people and the place. So this idea of like, you know, land ownership and you know, she talks extensively in the book and gives all these different examples about how, you know, there are ideas where you can talk about collective land ownership and what exactly would that look like? And is that even possible? And, and this is kind of why I'm leaving this section somewhat vague because of that last point I made is that the solutions to a community are going to change to turn, you know, based on the community itself. So asking ourselves who owns the land is a very important key question to understanding how to build a sustainable community. So that's the first pillar. The second pillar moving on here is who makes your money. Now the book says that we live in a monoculture of money is what it calls it. We're so used to that, that we're completely unaware of it. And I have to admit reading the book, I, I was not, you know, it's just amazing how we are so used to our currency system in the U.S. that we just, it, it's just how it works. We don't think about it. Maybe if you travel a lot, you might think something different of that. But, you know, it's based on one simple, the same concept, a promise to repay based on trust, right? In most countries, money is created majoritively by commercial banks. Uh, you know, they get money given to them by the central bank or in our case, the Fed given to commercial banks who create this money when they make loans or credit. This means that money is made available only when debt, which bears interest, is created. So let's talk about the debt. 
What about the people getting that debt? What are they actually spending this money on? Now, typically, it's been on houses, land, stocks, and shares. This means that these investments aren't creating new wealth, thereby generating new income to pay the interest. Instead, what it does is it actually profits by the price of the assets hiking up um, that already exists. The, the, what they're getting money from is from things that are already there. So there's no new wealth being created. Furthermore, the higher the debt, the more the banking sector gets and the less the people making those goods and services get. All right. So here's a suggestion. Let me kind of go into this so we can kind of break this up. One suggestion that is broken down uh, in donut economics there is that the central banks, the Fed, could create the money, which they do, issue it to commercial banks, as they do. But now the commercial banks would be required to hold 100% reserves of the loans that they make. In other words, every loan that they would make would have to be backed up by that bank by actual money rather than just credit. And it, it sounds kind of crazy compared to what we do now because we're so used to credit and debt and everything. I mean, this kind of strategy, it would help prevent crises like the 2008 recession. Like it would prevent those types of things from happening or at least pre help prevent those things from happening. You know, state owned like federal banks could use money from the Fed to channel low interest or zero interest loans through investments in things like long-term transformation projects, like affordable and carbon neutral housing and public transport and things like that. I mean, that's something that is such a, a unique idea that when I read it, I was like, why don't we already do that? You know, I mean, the idea sounds funky, but it makes so much sense. It's, it's basically saying, hey, what if instead of perpetuating a system of endless debt, what if we invested in productive areas of society instead? What if we invested in areas of society that would produce new wealth? How about that? You know, during the recession, and this is typical, the Fed cut interest rates to stimulate commercial bank lending, you know, so that commercial banks could lend more to people because people didn't have any money. And that just created more debt. You know, bonds were purchased back from commercial banks um, from the Fed. This is called quantitative easing. This is not a new thing. This, this happens when recession type times or, you know, worse are going on. And what happens is the banks use that money, the commercial banks use that money from the bonds to buy shares, raising commodity prices like grains and rice and even land and housing and stuff like that. They didn't invest in productive businesses when they could have, but they bought shares instead. It just seems so strange because when you, when you look at this, it it's the idea is benefiting the investor less right and the producer more that's the, that's the goal here there are a ton of ideas in the book that i have no time to get into i mean there's they're so cool there's there's stuff like creating windfall cash to each household for the use of resolving debt the fed channeling new money to green investment firms and social infrastructure projects like community-based renewable energy systems, which is part of a long-term transition anyway. We have to go towards that in the first place. Why not? Creating complementary currencies, which would work in harmony with other currencies. You know, there's a place in Bangladesh that started this currency for business owners called Bangla Pesa, 
And it had this, it had huge positive effects in the local economy. It allowed, you know, if there was an economic dip, it allowed business owners to be able to still purchase things um, with a different type of currency since there was more than one. Um, you know, so all hope wasn't lost. Switzerland is piloting a so far so successful time currency. That's right. Time currency, which allows people to provide time-based services like counseling, tutoring, hairdressing, or gardening to someone record the time spent in a time bank, like an actual bank where you record time credits and these credits can be accumulated and spent on other time-based services. The point is, we have a lot of opportunity to help fuel sustainable design in the financial sector where money is made. There's so many things we can do and books like this are just the start. So I think it's break time. We have talked about a lot already and we're about to break down the labor force. We're about to go through uh, who is gonna own all the robots and we're gonna talk about ideas and idea forums when we come back. So enjoy your break, catch yourself a breather and we'll see you in just a minute. Welcome back once again to the Sustainable Culture Podcast. I'm Jet, your host, and we are sitting here talking about distributive economics, specifically distributive design, and uh, even more specifically, Kate Rayworth's book, Donut Economics, maps out five pillars to distributive design that's, that she suggests is the key or the keys to a sustainable society. And we are now gonna be bringing up, we've talked already you know, about uh, who is owning the land and who is making our money and how those things can affect everything else. We're now gonna move on and we're gonna talk about the next question, which is who owns your labor? Now, this is a really big one that hits home easily with a lot of people because we're all on the labor force. Everybody, ha well, a lot of us have a job, the fortunate, those of us who have jobs. Um, it's, you know, it's no mystery anymore that wages have remained more or less the same for decades while executive pay has, I mean, broken the graphs and it keeps going. In fact, experts have been warning us about this feature of incredible inequality for years now. Uh, just the other night, I watched a documentary by Robert Reich, who's the ex-Secretary uh, of Labor under the Clinton administration. He he's a, a professor at, I want to say it's UC Berkeley on um, public policy and economics and things like that. Guy's been involved in economics and, and public policy for 20, 30 years. And he has a documentary on Netflix now called Inequality for All. I would highly recommend watching it. There's also another one called Saving Capitalism. That's right, Saving Capitalism. Watch that. Um, and it refers to these trends in lovely and in very entertaining detail. But he also makes sure to point out that, you know, while productivity has gone up steadily over the years, wage has barely gone anywhere and has actually gone down in some cases. Now, part of this is from the rise in technology. Um, we'll get to that. We're going to talk about uh, technology here in just a bit. So the question we're led to begin with is who owns the enterprise 
and captures the value that their workers generate. Generally speaking, workers are always considered as expendable as any other piece of the business here in the West. In the standard Western business brain and the business structure mindset, it's the labor budget that is almost always the first thing to get slashed when costs are cut. And it's often done in the name of increasing profits, which those workers helped facilitate. Rayworth summarizes, quote, workers are considered a production cost to be minimized or an input to be hired and fired as profitability requires, unquote. You know, this is the standard practice. If more profits are needed, we're got to cut costs. That's, that's the way that we use these things. And, you know, I've, I know this to not be true, you know, and I've never owned a business that has hired employees before. So to be fair, just know that and you make your judgments however you like. But if we're just going to talk theory here, and I mean, this is tried and true. I haven't owned a business that has hired many employees, but there are many case and point examples on business models that change that paradigm of cut costs so that profit can, can raise. Um, lean businesses and green businesses, so lean and green uh, business technologies are not exactly new methods and have been massively successful uh, in companies like Toyota, for example, where they totally flip the script in terms of how they prioritize their labor. Basically, the labor force of the company is prioritized as a permanent investment that drives higher profits the more it is nurtured. Now, this contrasts the Western philosophy of considering labor a negative cost, which has to be cut in order to increase profits. So when you back up and you look at this and you compare the two, our current system, standard system, seems quite narrow in scope and scale. And there are many great ideas out there to accomplish a leaner way to running a business. You know, co-ops come to mind, for example. And before you criticize them, think about this. Consider something. In 2012, the 300 largest co-ops worldwide generated $2.2 trillion in revenue. That's equivalent to the seventh largest economy. All right. So experts believe that the solution lies within two main keys here, rooted membership and stakeholder finance. Employees need to be given higher stake in the business, plain and simple. What if labor, think about this, what if labor could be made into the ultimate insider instead of being treated as a disposable yet necessary burden. You know, Stephen Covey talks about this in length. He reminisces in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, mentioned that many times before, I know. But in his book, he talks about this experience he had at a hotel once where, I mean, he marveled at the incredible service that he received from everyone. He couldn't believe how, you know, every single employee that he came in contact with was invested and sincere. It was like his experience was their individual personal business. And he ends up speaking with the owner. And as it turns out, the entire hotel crew from bottom to top had participated in the creation of their own mission statement. They had a company-wide one. This was a larger company, but this one was their mission statement as only they knew it at that store, at that ho uh, hotel location specifically. This mission statement covered every aspect of the business from, yes, wage, recruitment, to training and development. And so now in this instance, every employee 
now has a reason to feel truly invested and motivated to uphold its collective, now collective, core values. Now, this person, every employee feels like they truly have a piece of that puzzle. I remember I mentioned that earlier. We want to feel like we have a stake in this. And, uh, and there is no, that's just one example for, you know, we hear about employee-owned businesses. We hear about all these different things. I know there's a lot of beer breweries. I used to go to Hood River all the time. And I remember going to Full Sail, and I found out that Full Sail Brewing is, a, is an employee-owned business. Every employee holds a uh, share in the company, and I think that's incredible. You know, more businesses like that. Let's do more of that. We are finding more and more the importance of building our societies up from the bottom. So let's move on then to who will own the robots. Now, this is an interesting one, you know, probably because this is the least uh, sure of of the ones. I mean, we have a lot of robots right now, but I mean, technology is kind of just beginning. So where are we at now? Let's be real. We have already lost thousands of jobs to robots and we will continue to lose more during the coming years. It's just a matter of fact. Think about this. In year 1900, about half of the country worked in agriculture, but that has shrunk to what was 2% in year 2000, which is a lot less now. I think it's like 1% now. That's crazy. After the recession, a whole lot of menial, you know, skill-related jobs became available. Which means, what all this is meaning to say here is we've got a lot of low-skilled workers and much fewer highly skilled workers than we really should. But it's not all bad. Um, we have, for example, we've got the internet. Anyone with the internet can, can create, can be a creator. Look at me. I created a podcast. Boom. I'm a creator. I am, you know, doing a very small portion of the work, uh, if you think about it in that way. If I'm, you know, I just boop, boop, boop. Boom, upload. <laughs> and, uh, you know, anyone with a 3D printer, for example, can design and print almost anything they could need in theory. Um, you know, people are becoming something between consumer and producer, what she calls a, a uh, prosumer. And uh, thus creating the groundwork for a peer-to-peer -peer economy. You know, we talked a little bit about other kinds of currencies that can actually work in tandem with other currencies. And so I, with those ideas, you know, I wonder where this is leading us all the time. And, and now, too, there's, there's a huge need for um, a huge, honestly, well, I wasn't even planning on talking about this, but, but we could talk about the rise in the need for mental care right now. Think about the United States and our mental care situation. We have a huge opportunity there and you know you can't use robots to improve mental health not not to the extent that humans would need to you know psychotherapists and stuff like that so i mean there's a lot of jobs that are needed for humans that beat robots every time so things like school teachers things like psychotherapists things like artistic directors social workers right and even things like political commentators you know are are things that are more niche specialization related creativity insight empathy you know human contact skills that you know only humans excel at the point is humans will always have economic wants and needs that only other humans can satisfy okay but the 
Rise of Robotics has brought up many interesting and increasingly intriguing programs into the spotlight, like, for example, Universal Basic Income, um, because it talks about, you know, how if enough people were removed from the workforce from autom automated technology, we would need to figure out something in terms of how everyone's going to earn an income. Um, you know, so Universal Basic Income has been brought up, most notably by An Andrew Yang recently. Um and, you know, it, we could talk about how it could bring stability to an ever-shrinking labor market in the years to come. We don't really know where that's going to go, but it, it's a conversation that we should have. You know, maybe we should make sure that those who are working are working specialty niche work and make sure that there's a guaranteed income for those that don't have work or can't get work. You know, it's an idea, but it's something that we should talk about. One idea she shares in the book to help make good use of this transition into automated technology is to switch from taxing labor to taxing the use of non-renewable resources like machines. Machines are often a tax deductible expense. So this strategy would actually would definitely change the paradigm. Human beings are often a payroll tax expense, but could instead be an important investment and an asset. Right, we're going back to the lean business modeling again here. Maybe we could invest in human beings. Uh, just an idea. <laughs> Rayworth uh, even suggests introducing something like a robot dividend that would give everyone a stake in robotic technology, which sounds very cool. And I would love to hear what some of you tech nerds might know about that. That is a, a hole that I haven't really researched much down, but. If you have any idea on how a robot dividend would work or how we could take stakes on that, or if it's simple as just a stock investment, it would be really cool to see how, how we could expand that. That, that is very intriguing to me. Um, it's a really good way I think of using an existing system and making it into a, a better working system for everybody, as opposed to restructuring the entire thing. That would be really, really cool. So the other idea that she brings up, and this is a perfect segue into our last topic today is turning to what she calls the innovative commons. Now, maybe you remember in episode two, my second ever episode, uh, the sound was really bad because I, I uh, something was messed up with my audio. I remember when I was recording it and I was super nervous because I had just figured out, I was just figuring out how to interview. And um, I was interviewing a friend of mine named Chris Cochran, who works for the Innovation Collectives and the uh, Innovation Collective rather. And Innovation Collective is one of these innovative commons that she talks about in the book so thoroughly. I got so excited when I was reading the book and I thought, ooh, ooh, we have one of those here in town. And, uh, and so let's talk about that. Let's, let's talk about how the Innovation Collective, they have no idea I'm talking about them. Um, this is not, not a sponsored video, I promise. But they're, they're a cool example of this in town. And it's, it's based around this last pillar of who owns the ideas. So who does own the ideas? You know, what do ideas look like in terms of ownership in our society? Well, I think of patents, you know, copyrights, trademarks, patents are ideas made illegal to duplicate for a certain amount of time. So, you know, show us how you make it. And will prevent anyone from copying you for a long time. And, and it seems pretty logical and fair, maybe at first glance. But I want you to think about patents for just a minute. It's not like a patent prevents anyone from ever using your work to make a profit. It's only a matter of when they can do it, not if. It's it's not a, you know, I don't know if there's a, such a thing as a permanent patent. And, um, I, I, I only know of limited ones, but you know, there are businesses, some of which that I actually know of pretty well 
that launched their whole enterprises on straight up copied versions of other people's work. That's what Ibanez guitars did. I used to work and sell music instruments for a living. Ibanez guitars totally ripped off. This is a true story. They totally ripped off other brands like Gibson and, you know, like Fender and stuff like that made tons of money because they were making other companies designs better and got way sued though, you know, so no good. Um, but what I'm arguing here is that patents discourage competition, which we know is good for people who buy things. This competition in this example being that Ibanez made really uh, competitive instruments to the, you know, the original founders of these body styles and, you know, the way they did these things. But Ibanez introduced what could have been a healthy competition, but instead the competition wasn't even welcomed into the market. It was, you know, just pushed out. Had there been competition, I wonder if I wonder if we would have had better Fender Stratocasters today and better Gibson Les Pauls today. Who knows? I think so. Patents are theoretically supposed to protect, you know, praise to the creativity of the original producer. But in reality, it, it really stifles ingenuity that only a collective group can bring and discourages competition, which again is a good thing. Sometimes what happens too is patents get used to you know tactically gain an edge on a competitor maybe through a lawsuit or some such strategy these lawsuits work more in favor of lawyers though and big corporations than it does for the advancement of science or you know small scale innovators so the collaborative commons the collaborative commons have been doing amazing things to get around this problem like uh, messing around with initiatives like free open sourced software and hardware uh, that get used to freely share ideas, designs, theories, you know, to other innovators. Then there are people at companies like the Innovation Collectives, like I mentioned, who hold idea forums and collaboration events in the same building where they house dozens of independent entrepreneurs and innovators who also work in collaborative workspaces. There you can actually meet with another innovator at any skill capacity, theoretically, get involved in a project together and be from independent firms. So you're helping each other's businesses out and helping each other as professionals out at the same time. Think of what you know, this in relation to decentralized production, working through, you know, a deregulated but collaborative networks could do for a community in terms of innovation and technology or entrepreneurship in general. You know, the focus now becomes distributing economic power as far and wide as possible across a network and all of its parts. So it's, it's giving power in every part of the system. Seed the soil, if you will. Spread those seeds. So another suggestion that Rayworth raises here is, in terms of innovative, innovative commons and how it can really come in handy, is using 3D printing technology to actually print medical supplies, such as syringes and other tools, smaller tools like that, slashing costs and making such equipment far more affordable and available worldwide, which is a great idea. What a cool idea. You know, freely sourced design networks would allow this to happen much more efficiently. You guys remember why we're wearing cloth masks, by the way? Because they ran out. She's getting it expanding the network of innovation and production, and I love it. She finalizes with one last map for the state. 
Number one, invest in human ingenuity and collaboration in schools and universities worldwide. Number two, ensure all publicly funded research becomes public knowledge by contractually requiring it to be released in the knowledge commons freely sourced. Number three, roll back excessive reach on corporate property claims to prevent encroachment on the commons. Remember patents here, making it harder for the big guys to bully the little guys. Number four, publicly fund the setup of community workspaces, what she calls maker spaces, places where innovators can meet and greet and experiment with technology and equipment. And number five, encourage the spread of civic organizations like cooperative societies, student groups, innovation clubs, and neighborhood associations. You know, I think of places like Gizmo here in town that allow you to actually go and put your get your hands dirty and actually work on stuff. What if we had places like that, but really ramped up and, uh, and made as like this core element of how we come up with new ideas in our society. I just think that would be a total game changer. We have talked about a lot here today. It's been a lot of stuff to, to, to think about. And, and I could have gone and made this episode much, much longer, but I, I had to try and rush through that stuff as quick as possible. There's a lot to cover. And, uh, it's, it, it, I sincerely hope that you've gained something from all this. If nothing else, a sense of hope that there are numerous economic possibilities out there. We don't just have one way to run an economy. So let me leave you with a few last thoughts from the book here. I know that the words distributive and wealth distribution freak a lot of people out, but let's take a breath, let's read the textbooks, and let's consider facts. If we were to somehow initiate Let's just think about this. If we were to somehow initiate a small tax on the world's 2,000 richest people, like a 1.5% tax, for example, then we would generate $74 billion per every single year. That alone would fill the funding gap for every single kid to go to school and deliver essential health services in all low-income countries. I mean, <laughs> that's insane. Just take that thought with you. Combine that with a global corporate tax system treating international corporations like single united firms, which would close tax loopholes and end the whole, you know, tax haven thing. That right there would seriously boost public revenue for public services all over the world. All that supplemented with taxes on industries that we know are damaging, whether socially, environmentally, or both, a transaction tax to curb speculative trading, and even a carbon tax levied on coal and oil production in general. We've talked a little bit about that, but I think there's smart ways that we can actually structure those things too. So those are, those are the last things I wanted to leave with you. These are real ideas. These are not pipe dream ideas, and that's what's so encouraging to me about this book and about the concepts found in distributive economics. So I encourage you to check out uh, distributive economics some more, read the book, check out kateraworth.com and, and look for yourself. Thank you so much for watching and or listening to the show today. You know, what do you make of the ideas contained here within distributive design or the concept as a, as a whole? Do you think we could really instigate some of these ideas and how could we make this happen if so? 
you know, let me know your thoughts in the comments and let's talk about it. If you like the episode, I do ask that you please like, uh, share, and subscribe it on whatever platform you're using. It really, really does help. As always, you can find the Sustainable Culture Podcast on YouTube and any podcast platform that you decide to use. Donate to the show as well on Patreon at patreon.com slash sustainableculturepodcast. Thank you once again, everyone, and please remember to love each other, friends. I'm Jet McLaughlin, and I'll see you next time. As always, you can find the Sustainable Culture Podcast on YouTube and any podcast platform that you decide to use. Donate to the show as well on Patreon at patreon.com slash sustainableculturepodcast. Thank you once again, everyone, and please remember to love each other, friends. I'm Jet McLaughlin, and I'll see you next time.